Everyone is looking for peace. There's not a single one of us who does not long for deep, true, and lasting peace. And today in the gospel, Jesus is promising to give us a peace, not as the world gives it, but as he, as the Son of God, can give it. He says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. No, Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples before he goes to the cross. And this is ultimately going to be fulfilled at Pentecost, where he declares peace to his disciples and breathes on them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. But the peace that we long for is not simply the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of suffering. It's the shalom peace, the, the biblical understanding of peace, which ultimately means well-being, harmony, wholeness. It's what happens when we're in covenant relationship with God, when we're at peace with God, when we're reconciled to him, when everything that he gives to us is possessed by us. And that is a kind of a peace that only God can give. There's nothing in this world that can give us that kind of peace. One of the most profound quotes I know um, about peace and kind of explanation of how things are or why things are the way that they are in the world is from Thomas Merton. This is what he says. He says, we are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. In other words, one of the primary reasons why we're not at peace is because we are not ultimately at peace with God with regard to our sin. All of us know what it's like when we do not repent of a sin, when we've committed some sin, when we feel guilty. We know what it's like to make excuses about that. We know what it's like to, to get defensive when someone points it out. We know what it's like to, to start to blame other people about what the thing that we're struggling with, right? the moral fault that we have. We even know what it's like to try to rationalize or justify that sin by trying to explain the sin away. This experience of a guilty conscience is so universal and common that even when I talked to people in, the, in our grade school, I was talking to eighth graders, they explained it perfectly. Now, why do we do that when we're guilty? The reason is because we're made for love and something in us inherently understands that when we do not love, we're, we're not living according to our dignity. And right, we know that the pain of conscience can be so serious and so difficult that we want to do everything we can to be at peace as we, we, we try to do these things to make ourselves feel better. But without real forgiveness, we will never find peace trying to deflect away from what we've done wrong. We'll never find peace blaming other people. It is only mercy that's capable of bringing us this peace. And so therefore we see that when people are trying to deny God, the very source of mercy, and they're trying to relativize sin by trying to rationalize the sin away and deny the sin, we see that the problem only gets worse. And so in our culture, that, that ultimately is pushing God away from the culture, is trying to relativize sin so that everyone can live according to their own understanding of what is right and wrong, has to still grapple with this problem. And it has to grapple with this problem by, by a certain sense wrestling with it. And it comes out and in many ways is projected into all sorts of culture wars and all sorts of public policy. And we see this all of the time happening in our world, in a world without peace. One of the most unmistakable examples of this happening today 
is the negative response to the recent leaked draft of the majority opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States, Dobbs versus Mississippi, that we know if it becomes final, will ultimately be the reversal of Roe versus Wade and push abortion, the issue of abortion back to the states. All we have to do is ask ourselves, how are people responding to this? How are people reacting to this news? We see protests at the Supreme Justice's houses, protests in churches, promise of civil unrest on, on the behalf of some people. This pro-life movement is being labeled as anti-woman, right, as being labeled as bigoted. We see people in our country beginning to, to try to do everything they can to stop conversation about this. We see the Supreme Court, even its legitimacy being thrown up in the air. We even see politicians recently, including Catholics, seeking to pass one of the most pro-abortion bills in the history of our country, all in response to this ruling. It's important for us as Christians, and I would say critical for us to understand what's happening in light of this, this dynamic of the human heart, this dynamic of conscience. Some of you might remember in 2020, before the, the election in 2020, we gave a preaching series on the late commitment to the common good. We talked about different areas of foundation of the common good. And one of those homilies, I preach on the dignity of human life. And if you remember in that homily, it talked about how abortion hurts men and women. It's deeply painful for people. And because one in three women have had an abortion, I said, we shouldn't be naive that one of the reasons why people are pro-choice or they tend to downplay abortion is because they themselves or someone they know has had an abortion. It's a very difficult thing to face. In fact, it sometimes is so difficult for us to confront the reality of what abortion is that sometimes we see people defending pro-choice, the pro-choice position with almost like a, a religious fervor. It's a form of denial. I also said in that homily that it's precisely when we know Jesus and his loving mercy that we don't have to be in denial about reality. In other words, when we know Jesus loves us in the midst of our brokenness, right? If we know that he's for us and not against us, that he's taken our guilt upon himself, we don't have to run away from reality. We can face it because he is the one who is love and mercy itself. And he sets us free from a conscience that might be weighed down and burdened by such excessive guilt. And I also said to the parish that if any of you, men or women, have had any involvement with anything that is seriously wrong or, or maybe even an abortion, that God loves you, that he came to set you free, that he's taken all that upon himself so that we can be Christians bringing his love and truth into a world so that people don't have to fall into this. You see, the truth is, is that if people do not believe they can be forgiven, they will never have peace. And so in light of all of this, especially in light of the real prospect of Roe v. Wade being overturned, and perhaps as early as tomorrow the announcement can come, I want to offer four points for us as Catholics to consider in this cultural moment. Number one, changing laws around abortion will not change hearts about abortion. We need to recognize that yes, abortions probably will decrease because many states have pro-life laws on their books. Then it's no longer a federal issue, it will be illegal to have abortions in particular states. Yes, that is a, a, a victory. At the same time, that's not gonna change people's hearts about abortion. 
In order for us to recognize what it means to change people's hearts, we need to acknowledge that often what abortion really is about. We need to go to the root of what this is about. And I think it's difficult for us as Christians even to acknowledge this. In other words, many of the reasons why abortion exists is because people are having relations with each other with an intention against life. That is, they're, they're, they're having relations and they're having this kind of, this, this contraceptive mentality that abortion has, or I'm sorry, that sex has nothing to do with children. And so because of that, if, a, if there's an unplanned pregnancy, that unplanned pregnancy is seen as a problem to be solved rather, rather than a child to be welcomed and loved as a gift from God. In this sense, we can see that abortion simply functions as backup contraception. And so outlawing abortion, making it illegal, you know, in the, on the federal level, even on the state level, isn't going to change our hearts to have a renewed reverence and awe for how God made us, to, have, to approach sexuality with this beautiful thanksgiving and praise for how God made us. That's something that has to happen on the level of the heart and cannot be accomplished by mere judicial fiat. Number two, we need to remember not to take personally any attacks that we might receive for being pro-life in light of any victory of the, of the Supreme Court. Instead, we need to be as humble and compassionate as possible. It is true that much of the pain of people's conscience will probably cause there to be a lot of societal unrest upon some sort of declaration from the Supreme Court. But we need to remember that this is not about us. This is not about the pro-life position. This is not about Christians seeking to defend innocent life. And we remember that it is really, really hard for some people to confront the evil of abortion. And that's what's going to happen. And that's what's happening right now is that this, as this issue comes up into the fore, it's not the Supreme Court's fault. It's we're being forced to confront this issue once more. And that is very difficult for some people. And so we need to be as compassionate as possible. Now, most of us know that there are a lot of people who have been deceived about the arguments for the pro-choice side, that there are some people who simply just do not know what they don't know. But we also know that for people who've examined the arguments, that intuitively, the pro-choice arguments, especially in light of science, are exceptionally weak. If there wasn't a vested interest for abortion to happen, very few people would buy into those arguments. And so when we face resistance, when people start calling us names, when people start um, resisting us and attacking us and making us feel guilty for holding on the, to the dignity of, the, of human life in all circumstances, those people do not need our arguments. They don't, they don't need any self-righteous judgments. They don't need to be guilted. They don't even need to, to hear us say, see, we're right. They need our compassion. They need our love. Because we recognize what people are going through in their hearts. I think we can be the very people that can welcome them home to receiving God's love and mercy. Number three, nothing is more, is nothing is more relevant than the mercy of God. To the chagrin of unbelievers, nothing is more relevant than the mercy of God. If the mercy of God is real, all of our sins, no matter how great, no matter how many times that we've done them, all of our shame, all of our guilt is completely wiped away by Jesus. In fact, this mercy is so strong that he even destroys the thing that we fear the most, and that is death. Nothing is more relevant than the mercy of God. And therefore, if that's true, 
we preach God's mercy with great confidence. One of the things that I like to say is, is that there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who've discovered God's mercy in Jesus and those who haven't. If we as Christians profess to believe what we really believe, we need to count ourselves as those who have discovered God's incredible mercy. And if we've discovered that, it's our role to bring that mercy to the world. One of the things that I love about, um, about mercy is that it transforms people. In fact, the greatest proof that mercy is the key to peace is when we see those women who have suffered and experienced abortion and men who have been involved in that and have experienced God's love and mercy and forgiveness become the strongest voices for the pro-life cause. And they do it not out of guilt, but out of a conviction of God's mercy is real and they want to prevent other women from falling into this. That is proof that God's mercy is so powerful. And it's really important for us to see that. One of the things that we might want to keep in mind is if we have pro-life or pro-choice family members or maybe family members who really just strongly disagree with the church is to not to argue with them, but maybe to ask some provocative questions. And I would say, if you're talking to someone in your family, just simply ask them this question and see how they respond. Do you believe it's possible for someone who's committed an abortion or the, or the, the man that's, that was with the woman that committed an abortion to experience forgiveness? and to feel forgiven by God. If they say no, that's ultimately the issue because they might not even believe that that's possible. But if they say yes, simply ask them a follow-up question. Well, who, who do you know who has done this has experienced God's forgiveness and freedom? And if they can't name anybody, that's again, once more the issue. We need to be confident and declare that God's mercy is real. And that leads to my fourth point. Consider yourselves apostles of mercy and never stop talking about how gentle, merciful, and kind our God is. Never stop talking about what he's done for us on the cross and lift up our, we lift to him our pains and our burdens and our guilt and he sets us free. Never stop talking about that. In fact, as a priest, when I hear parishioners talk about how loving God is, when they experience God's mercy, for this kind of sin or other kinds of sin, it increases my faith because I'll never forget how free I feel when I go to confession, when I receive God's mercy. And when we share that to people who might be struggling, that gives hope. And hope is what we need when people are struggling with something in their conscience. They need hope that they don't always have to feel like this, that Jesus has come to set them free. One of the things we always have to remember as well is that one of the big reasons why people don't feel forgiven is, be, is because they haven't yet forgiven themselves. When we do something really bad, we can suffer some trauma and we can be kind of locked in shame and, and even self-hatred. And it's that invitation to forgive ourselves, to love us as God loves us, that often sets us free from that guilty feeling. And some people need to be walked through that process. And that's the stuff of inner healing, the stuff of deliverance, the stuff that is so incredibly powerful. This is one of the reasons why I preach about it so often, because when, when I pray with people in the confessional, when people confess very serious and heavy things, when you pray with them, they experience undeniable, unexplainable peace, a peace that the world could never give, a peace that the pushing pro-choice laws would never give them. 
My brothers and sisters, I really believe, and I could be wrong, that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And I believe this is our chance once more as a church to declare to the world that Jesus is our peace, precisely because he's our mercy.